Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 243, recorded July 21st, 2021, and I'm Brian Aachen. And I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Simon Wilson. Welcome, Simon. Thanks for agreeing to show up today. No problem at all. I've been looking forward to this. Um, if anybody doesn't know who you are, can we do a like quick uh, who's Simon? Sure. Um, so yeah, my name's Simon Willison. I've been doing Python bits and pieces for around, around about 20 years now. Um, so I'm a co-creator of the Django web framework from many, many years ago. I think Django is definitely celebrated its 15th birthday now. Um, but more recently, I've been working on a set of open source tools um, around this, this project I have called Dataset, which is a web application for exploring a relational database, a SQLite database. But it also has tools for publishing those databases online, building those databases out of lots of different sources of data. I'm trying to bootstrap an entire ecosystem of data and, and analytics tooling around SQLite, because it turns out everyone in the world has SQLite, even though, they, even though they don't necessarily know that they have it. And there's some really cool stuff that yeah. you can do with it. Yeah, it's a really cool project. Yeah, it is. If you wanted to create your own personal search engine that would let you just go and say, search your Gmail, your Twitter, your Instagram, and your file system all at once. Uh, yep. That's pretty I'm, much I'm, it, right? That's part of the tooling. Yeah, there's a whole side of it, which is um, which I've called dog sheep for ridiculous reasons. Um, but the dog sheep project is about personal analytics. It's about getting your personal tweets and messages and all of the personal data about yourself into one place. So you've got essentially a little mini data warehouse on your laptop that you can use to query aspects of your own life. And that's been a really fun way of driving features in the software, which can then be applied to like company databases and so forth as well. Yeah, Very cool. super cool. Well, if I didn't want to do SQLite, I might want to use Mongo. What do you think? You may want to. And so there's some big news around MongoDB. MongoDB 5 is out, which, you know, I'm all about MongoDB, which makes me super excited. Probably won't switch right, right away because I don't actually need the features that are there, but I'm super excited to see things going strong. So some of the things that are relevant, and I think they're really relevant to Python people, especially the data science side. So basically there's, there's two important things. One has to do with working with time series and the other has to do with stability of the app that you don't want to keep changing so that you can upgrade your database right like if the database api slightly changes you don't want to have to deal with those incompatibilities until you're ready to take advantage of the benefits of making those changes yeah. so one of the things that comes with is in the database there are native time series schemas and collection types that's incredible so, yeah so you can do really interesting things like a moving average as a query with across like data and, and stored data in a format that's meant to make that incredibly fast and low latency. But you can also do like, I would like the, uh, the numerical derivative over time as a moving average, as of a query or the integral of this collection has <laughs> it. So you can do like math as part of your query and get it to, to calculate those things in really interesting ways. So the time series has things like clustered indexes and window functions and all sorts of interesting things. So that's one. Uh, it automatically optimizes your schema for high efficient storage, which is pretty cool. That's, I think, independent of the time series, but not 100% sure. Um, it has, the other big thing is the versioned API for future-proof apps. So suppose you build against version, I, don't know, I guess 5 is the one that has it. Do you build against version 5 of MongoDB and then... Eventually, some point, like version seven comes along and like, oh, you can do this new way of querying, but it's going to break some stuff. So you, you want to use it, you got to fix your app. You can just say, I want the database to look like version five forever. 
And no matter what version is in production, it'll it'll behave the right way according to what you said you wanted it to behave right. So you could say, I want version seven to be like five for me, but it can be version seven for someone else, that kind of thing. Huh. Yeah. The other thing, the way that you talk to it, the way that you interact with it is through just a terminal app. You fire it up or a command prompt app and you talk to it. And traditionally, this thing has been gross. It's been like, it's fine, but it has zero syntax highlighting. It has zero autocomplete, those types of things, right? So they're introducing a new shell. So traditionally, you would have typed Mongo, enter, connected. Now you type Mongo SH because the old one is still there for compatibility reasons. But that one now has syntax highlighting, better error checking, pretty printing, autocomplete, things like that. So if you're going to do stuff on the shell, then you really should just run the new one. That's pretty cool. I'm going to go yeah. with Mongosh as the... Uh... Uh, Ma Mongosh. <laughs> oh my gosh, what are you doing? Yeah, I'm running the shell, the new one. I know it. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. And then also they, uh, they're they talking about having serverless um, serverless instances. So wow. like Lambda, Lambda type functions where you don't actually have to manage the database or things like that. So I didn't know a whole lot about it. You can also watch the uh, keynote and actually the whole conference, but the keynote is probably most relevant here. Turns out that it's for a public billion dollar company or whatever they're worth. It's incredibly amateurish and, and like more like a, talent fair of like a high school or something like that, but whatever, <laughs> you'll still learn. I mean, it's like, you'll, you'll see it's, it's like okay. super. I have to check it out now. Yeah. It's like worth watching for the, like the, the, um, the blush worthy, like, Oh, it's you. Oh, Oh, come on. Okay. Well, let's just move on now, please. But yeah. nonetheless, you do, they do uh, demo some interesting things and whatnot. So that's probably enough on that. But if you're into MongoDB, MongoDB five has a lot of cool things to talk about there. You know, what else is cool and coming up? Ah, uh, Python. Python. 3.11. <laughs> <laughs> we, don't, we don't even have Python 3.10 yet. So, well, I do. Um, you, the beta is available for 3.10. You can run it. But the alpha is around for 3.11, which is uh, neat. Nice. Um, and uh, what I wanted to highlight here was, uh, highlight, um, was enhanced error locations in tracebacks. I'm so excited about this. This is so cool. So, um, I mean, Python's not been that bad for tracebacks. I've I've dealt with worse tracebacks, but the uh, it points out what line it's going on. But sometimes there's like weird stuff, like none not dereferenceable or something, and yeah. you, you don't know what's going on. But now it'll, it in three eleven, it will point to exactly what part of the line has the error uh, with little uh, little carrots underneath pointing exactly where it's at. That is and, actually super cool. So, like the example you got on the screen here on the announcement, you've got multiple objects being accessing their fields like 0.1.x, 0.2.x. And the error is none type object has no attribute X, which is probably the most common error that you'll ever find in Python. Yeah. But what I like about it that you're pointing out here is like the second object is yep. the one that is none. And it actually highlights, no, no, not the first one, the second one, because there's nothing about the error message that would tell you which of these two things was the problem. Yeah, That's awesome. Yeah, and it's um it's deep into the so if if you have a deep stack trace, it'll show you exactly where into it. And even like there there's another example where it shows like uh um you're a, deep a into four a dictionary. level deep dictionary yep. dereference or something, right? And it and it points out exactly which index is the one that's messing up. Um so that's pretty amazing. Uh, also even math uh, arithmetic expressions uh, like a division by zero. You've got multiple divisions. Uh, which one is the problem? And it'll show you exactly which one it is. 
the thing I love about this change is this is one of those things. This is absurdly difficult. Like this is like acres of computer science and a bunch of people working together <laughs> on this for I couldn't even imagine how long it took them to do to make something which is just a beautiful little incremental improvement to our lives as Python developers. But um, if you, yeah. if you, I think the, the release notes actually talk about some of the internal changes they had to make that to get this to work. This is like really deep stuff. And it's totally worth it for what you get out of it. But it, it's one, I th think it's easy to look at this and think, okay, that's a reasonably sensible small change. And this was not a small change at all. And I think it's going to dramatically increase the on-ramping of new people into Python because um, being able to like figure out what's wrong with your code, that's, you know, basics. Um, I mean, some of us old hatters uh, are used to digging into like confusing tracebacks, but um, some new people are not. So if we can make them less confusing, that'll be great. Right. When I work with new programmers, it's so common. You get a, they get a traceback and they freeze because this utter, <laughs> utter meaningless junk has just shown up on their screen. And what are they supposed to do with that? And here it feels like this is just such a huge improvement because at least it's pointing to the bit in the giant blob of text that they should be paying attention to. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. I want it in 310 though, but we have to wait till 311. <laughs> <laughs> From futures, import nice stack trace or traceback. Yeah, very cool. All right. So, Simon, you got the third one. Tell us all about it. Okay. So, Fly.io are a hosting provider who I've been, they launched about a year ago. I've been following along because they're doing some really interesting stuff around hosting Docker containers. And all my stuff is in Docker containers. So, I'm always looking for things where I can throw a Docker docking container or the host online. Their secret source is that they do geographic hosting. So, you can ask them to run your container in like, Tokyo and San Francisco and London, and they will do that and they will direct traffic to the closest version of that app. So it's this thing. I, I worked at Eventbrite for, for many years, and one of the things I was always trying to figure out was okay, could we run Eventbrite close to our users? Could we have like European, a database in Europe and a database in New York and give people a faster experience that way? Incredibly difficult to do. Right. And because what a lot of people do is they do Cdns so the static right. content, but That's then there's easy. one server somewhere. That's is the really problem. the it's, one, it's that, right? It's, yeah. the, it's the database. It's the application code, and then it's the database server especially. And so what Fly.io are doing is making it so much easier to do this that you could start a project and have it geographically distributed from day one without having to think particularly hard about it. So I like right. that about them. But then they wrote this. This this article came out within the last week, I think. Um, and it talks about their plan for multi-region databases. And in their case, they're talking about Postgres and this desire to have Postgres data have like Postgres databases distributed around the world. And so when you're doing that, splitting up your having rights to multiple places remains incredibly difficult. But a very common pattern is you say, okay, we're gonna have the the leads database is in, I don't know. New York and that all of the rights go to that. And then any of the reads get spread out to a replica database that's running in different places around the world. And that's still a really difficult thing to set up with the geographic load balancing. Mm -hmm. So what they propose is basically run your application all the way around the world and set it up so that if the, anyone tries to write to the database and they're not talking to the leads database server, the error gets caught. And the application server replies to Fly's CDN and say, says, hey, rerun this request against the leader database in New York. And so the user doesn't see anything at all. The user attempts to do something, and it works. And what's actually happened is they tried to do a write against Tokyo. Tokyo said, oh, we can't handle writes. Fly invisibly sort of internally redirected to New York. The write happened against New York, and the result came back. And so this takes geographic geographically distributing your database reads, which used to be I mean, I was thinking it was going to be a team of engineers for six months to get this working. 
and it's just baked into their platform. It's it's this incredibly elegant piece of um, sort of systems engineering design that they've done. And I I was fascinated. You know, I've, I've I've banged my head against this problem for so long, and they just solved it. You know, they just said, "Hey, here's a way that'll work. We've shipped it. Try, try it out." Uh, I I as a as something of a, a architecture nerd, this really fascinated me. This That's is cool. fascinating. Yeah, and I can see just you know we've got like the retry decorators and stuff for various python functions like i could see almost a you know uh, like retry the right decorator right. that you put on on them and exactly. it just goes it catches the error and it just goes nope we're going to send it where it goes and then then return the result right like yeah and it, it's basically respects, put decorators anywhere you're going to ever do a write and yeah. you're good to go exactly and in fact they um they've even got example code for ruby on rails we don't even have to do that they catch the database error that says you know you tried to do a write in a read-only transaction and they turn that into an HTTP header that replays it against the, the lead region. And that's it. It's like this, it's in, on the one hand, it's kind of an awful kludgy hack, but it's also genius. Like this is taking six months of engineering work and turning it into add these five lines of code. And now your application works all the way around the world. I'm, I'm, it's, yeah. It fascinates me. Yeah, this is, cool. this is pretty interesting. Yeah. They also, um, I've got, there's one other link in the show notes. There's a second article they put out a few days ago, um, which is just doing something. It's, it's more about using Redis as a cache in your geographical data centers. So you can have a local Redis, um, like, um, because I mean, their argument is people in London tend to be interested in other things that people in London are interested. Ditto for Tokyo. So actually distributing your cache by city normally gives you really good cache hit rates. Um, but they also pointed out that, and I didn't know that Redis could do this, Redis can be set up to allow writes to supposedly read-only replicas. So you can have a local cache that you're writing to and reading from, but still have that leader Redis in your main data center that can send writes out to all of those replicas. So that gives you cache invalidation from a central point. You can, in your sort of lead Redis, you can say, okay, everyone delete the cache entry for whatever this thing is, and all of those replicas around the world will then delete that cache entry, even though normally they're acting independently. And yeah, it's, um, again, this is for, if, if you're a systems architecture design nerd, the, the stuff that they're doing is so interesting. I think it's interesting, yeah. and I'm not one of those, but. Uh. <laughs> Maybe you are, and I, I you didn't realize. Well. <laughs> <laughs> you will be next year. You will be next year. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, this is super cool as well, and yeah, it just seems really useful you know and it's perfectly in line with like let's take our app and put the logic in multiple places mm. because that person is unlikely to move from tokyo to virginia during a session <laughs> right <laughs> right once they start in one place they're going to stay in that place and so the cache would would reasonably just have like their local data on that one instance right yeah yeah, cool. But maybe your CDN or not your CDN, your your CMS is like generated a page, and everybody needs that always to be in sync, right? There's there's that global data as well. Yeah, so very cool. I like this. Check it Neat. out. Neat indeed. Well, let's talk about unicorns. I love unicorns. So unicorns, the magical creature. And Simon, I'm so glad that you're here because we can get your thoughts on this, even if you maybe haven't been like deep down in it. Um, so not too long ago, we talked about HTMX, which I'm still a big fan of HTMX. It's a cool like sprinkling of magic onto uh, JavaScript-y stuff onto your page to make it more interactive. But if you're doing Django, HTMX is very relevant. But there's also this thing called Django Unicorn at Django-Unicorn.com. It's a magical full stack framework for Django. So the idea is that you can create these templates, these interactive uh, templates without going and rewriting everything in like some front end framework like react or something like that 
you can skip the JavaScript build tools because you know you got a lot less of that, and um, you can skip a bunch of serializers and just use Django for like uh, the API bits. So you install Unicorn, you create a component, and then at the top of your template, you put load, you know, percent load Unicorn, and then you can just give it a one of these names. So for example, here's a little task. Task one is tell people about Unicorn. I can add that as too many. We'll tell people about Unicorn. And you can see like this cool little thing is interacting and it's not a refreshing the page, right? It's like a front end framework type of thing. But the way that you write it is you just put some extra template pieces on there, like unicorn colon prevent, uh, submit prevent. And we're going to do this add function instead. And if somebody hits the, the escape key, we're going to change the value. And, and you know, that's not JavaScript. Those are just HTML attributes, but they turn into JavaScript, right? Which is very cool. So. And then you just put your regular Django template business down and, and off it goes. And it turns it into basically something that's way more front-end framework friendly. Simon, what do you think? So as far as I can tell, the, tr the real magic here is that they're using they're doing the trick where you render the HTML on the server, in this case, use, reusing your Django template. And then yes. the, the, they, they send back JSON with a blob of HTML in which you then essentially write into an inner HTML to update the page. And I love yeah. this pattern. Like, um, this is uh, sort of fun. I, I've always been a big fan of the progressive enhancement um, me method of writing JavaScript, where you get the stuff to more or less work without any JavaScript at all. And then if there's JavaScript, then you get in-page page updates and all of that kind of thing. Um, but there's also well, one of the problems I've seen with um, all sorts of lo lots of engineering shops that try and do that is that you end up writing your templates twice. You have the Django templates that know how to do something, and then you have front-end templates using React or handlebars or whatever that know how to do something, and you have to keep those in sync, which is an enormous waste of time for everyone involved. So yeah. what they're doing here, then, is they're handling that, they're, they're cleaning up that inconsistency for you. You write, a you write a Django template, they can then render, they can use that template in Python code to generate just that fragment of HTML, send that back and have that displayed on the page. So yeah, I think this is a really interesting approach. I've not spent much time with Django Unicorn itself, but um, it also reminds me a bit of the, um, I think it's called Hot, Hot, Hot Wire. The yeah. uh, Ruby on Rails yeah, community bit. built this, yep. this very exciting um, framework, again, against these kinds of principles, just shipping blobs of HTML back and forth. I feel like it's um, something like the, the, the mad rush towards single page applications over the past 10 years it's mostly resulted in applications that load slower and uh, take 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 longer for people to build. And I'm, well, and they're I'm, so I'm glad inconsistent, to... and they make me so crazy. For example, I'll go to like a bank or something, and I'll say, "All right, I'm going to run my one password pre-fill oh. the page," and it you'll yeah. see it fill out the page, and then you try to submit it. It goes, "Please fill out this field," and there's clearly like an email address or something in there. What do you got to do? Go put a space, delete the space. So the JavaScript yeah. event triggers because they're like, not really, not it's really all HTML. Kind of it's all that junk. And it's just like, yeah, you know what I mean? But it's, it turns I out what yeah. people actually want is they don't want a full page reload. Like anyone who's getting into single page apps and so on, really, they just don't want that flicker when the browser reloads everything. Yep. So using this trick where if JavaScript is available, you update a section of the page using stuff that came back from an Ajax API totally works and that that, that feels yeah. like the model here and also the, the hotwire model from rails exactly yeah so the htmx the hotwire and, and this it's all about let's not write new stuff let's just take the views and the templates are already doing their magic and let's just put the little pieces in there to make them dynamic which i'm all about this this is great what i've missed is why is this a django thing is it 
Is it because it uses the Django uh, templates or is that? It looks like it. Yeah. It looks like the, the magic here is that it's using Django templates. Um, it's so it, cause it view has its well. own, well, cause it, it provides its okay. own views to us because it needs to provide views that have provided JSON API where you can send it data from a form. It then renders that Django template in Python code and then sends you back the stuff. So there's two sides to this, right? There's the Python um, Django uh, view functions they've written, but they've also written a, a sort of eight kilobyte, I think, of JavaScript that that, that, that hooks it up on the yeah, front okay. end. Cool. Nice. Yep. Yep. Very neat. So not very much code at all to get your Django to become more dynamic, which is great. Yeah. So um, are, I don't think unicorns are blue. Uh, uh, I'm not really sure what color unicorns. I feel like they could be any color. Like they might be rainbow, yeah. but but this that actually that's not a rainbow. It's not a rainbow. <laughs> I want to I want to talk or about unicorn. blue. And I'm I'm I think I'm I think I'm ready uh, to have tomatoes thrown at me or something for bringing this up. Um, <laughs> but so blue is is an alternative to black. Uh, anyway, um, so I love black. I think black's awesome. But there are times where you can't use it, uh, and in the for specific reasons. And um, I'm thinking here, basic, basically, about the decision that Black made to default to uh, um, not a default, but enforce uh, double quotes on strings instead of single quotes. There are some code bases where there's already a standard to use single quotes, and then there's also code bases where there's so many strings that actually have mixed quotes so you've got uh single quotes and then double quotes inside and you know mine end up mixed sometimes because if i want to put quote something in the actual string i'll use single quotes on the outside but if i'm going to say it's a good idea i'll put double quotes on the outside so i don't have to escape the single quote you know like if if you're going to have one of the quotes in the string then just go with the other one is often something i'll end up doing Oh, actually, um, Black does that for you. If you've got a string with a single quote in, uh, or a string with a double quote in, that's the one time that Black will use single quotes, which is kind of neat. Okay, okay, yeah. that's good. Yeah. Good to know. I do like that. But, okay, so if this is, this the sticking point is really just the quotes, then maybe try Blue. So Blue is is actually, I was worried that it was going to be a fork of Black. It's not a fork. It's um it's sort of a, in includes black and it like uh, overwrites some of the functionality hmm. specifically just a few things so the differences are it defaults to single quote strings um and except for except for things places where we love double quotes like uh doc strings and triple quoted sw- strings for some reason those look weird with single quotes so uh, i'm on board with that um it defaults the line lengths to 79, and I don't really care because I always override that to like 120 or something like that. Um, and I like black, that black allows that overriding. Uh, and then the other thing that I didn't even think about, which is kind of nice, is uh, one of the things black does is uh, takes the hash, um, like if you have uh, hash comments on the on your right side of your code, if you've got like a block of them, like, like maybe you're talking about an entire block of code, so you have a block of comments, um black will like remove the white space in front of the hash whereas blue will leave those alone so you can have block comments on the side um that's really it that's the only difference um and i uh i think having this around is a neat thing uh interesting quote from the doc is that they actually don't want to keep uh keep this project alive very long they'd really like these to just be options in black i don't, I don't <laughs> yeah, know how viral they'll I, get but i don't think that's going to happen i think black is pretty hardcore 
guarantee um like they're very into not adding configuration if they can still avoid it <laughs> yeah um yeah. in researching this one of the things i uh somehow missed about black maybe i haven't read the documentation in a long time but a couple of years ago uh it added uh the ability to have format off and format on so uh one of the things for instance occasionally not very often occasionally i've got a large chunk of data set up in uh in like a, a list or a, or a dictionary or something oh. with um that i have called the i have them aligned with comma alignment like an old style csv table um and black totally or like a 1980s c programmer yeah oh, sure <laughs> um but black totally tears that apart but for that you can you can turn formatting off and um i appreciate oh, that's, that so. that's cool that's a good feature see it does have a little bit of a uh, little Just, bit of give um but yeah so yeah that's cool yeah very good one very good one so we got next oh okay um so this is there's a link in the show notes this um this is an article that um somebody wrote about using tesseract ocr to build yourself a searchable index of your screenshots um and i got really excited about this because tesseract is like Tesseract's been around since 1995, I think. It's a hu- it started off at Hewlett-Packard, and it's pretty much still the leading light of OCR in the open source space, but I've never managed to get it to work. And I've always wanted OCR that I can just run. And thanks to this article, I can actually use Tesseract now. So I've, I've got a couple of demos here. Can we see this? Yeah. So um, I grabbed a screenshot just of the a random slide from our conversation earlier, and I can run, let's see, I think it's Tesseract um, screenshot.png. I'll put it in a file called screenshot dash. You have to tell it the language that you're using because that affects how it does these things. And it supports like 70 odd languages, I think. Um, And I'm going to say, I want that as a TXT file. And you run it. And now if I cat screenshot.txt, this is the launch today MongoDB 5.0. This is the screenshot I took of our conversation earlier. Uh, A better example even would be the, um, I took a screenshot of Python documentation just now. So I can run that same command, except I'll do it against Python docs.png, Python docs.png, I'll call it p screenshot. There we go. Okay, and now if I cat this, this is pretty decent OCR against a screenshot wow. of a, of a yeah. pile of documentation. Wow. The really fun thing, though, is that you can say you want it as a PDF file. And if you do that, it will give you a PDF which is visually identical to the screenshot, but has selectable text on it. So you can copy and paste out of that PDF. So um, the chat whose article is linked in the um, in the, uh, the the notes, um, his trick is he has a folder on his computer that he saves screenshots to, and he has a automated script that then turns those screenshots into these annotated PDFs, which means that Spotlight on his Mac can now search them. So anything that he drops into that folder a few seconds later becomes available to global search on his computer. I think that's a really <laughs> neat trick. I um, love it. That's great. Then the... Um, so yeah, there's so much stuff I want to do with this. Um, uh, yeah, it was Alec, um, Alexandru Nedulsu. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And um, wrote all of this up. Um, but yeah, it's it's and um, you can install it with Homebrew. It's Brew Install Tesseract. There's actually a Python library called Py. I think it's called PyTesseract, which I thought was doing complicated things with C modules. Actually, if you read the source, it's just shelling out to this command. So. <laughs> apparently that's the state of the art in in python um ocr is shell out to the tesseract command line tool which i'm perfectly happy to do you know yeah it's neat i really like this you know it's if you've got a bunch of image data and you want to be able to do interesting things with it like here's a really quick and easy way to do it right right 
It's super right. simple. The um, this article also, I didn't know that you could use the Mac um, Launch D. I think you can use you can add a launch agent which automatically runs a script when a file is saved in a certain folder. So in this case, he's got a launch script that runs the um, the, the test rack OCR stuff. But this is great, right? Now I can automate any folder on my Mac to do basically anything using this system that's built into the operating system that I didn't know how to use. I didn't know you could do that either. That's great. That's cool. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. I feel like this is right up your alley, Simon, you know, with the the data set, the dog sheep and like, oh, here's this data we got from this this automation. And yet I just can't dig into it. And now you can. I'm really excited about this. Although, um, so Apple Photos, the next version of MacOS, Apple Photos is going to do OCR on all of your photographs for you. So you can search for text in pictures that you've taken. And um, if it's anything like the current version of um, OSX Photos, all of that data is going to be stored in SQLite databases on your computer. Like I've been um, having a huge amount of fun building things against my Apple Photos library because they already run machine learning labeling against your photos. They know when you take a photo of a dog and they tag it with dog. And the word dog is in a SQLite database on your computer. So once you figure that out, you can run SQL queries against photos you've taken and say, say, show me every photo I've taken of a dog that was in San Francisco on like in the month of May. And you get results back, which is crazy interesting. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that's super cool. I, I love the stuff that you're doing with that. Is it just local or is are they caching that in their own databases as well? Oh, well, so they synchronize it all. So if you're using iCloud, your photos are synchronized up to their servers. That You take a photo on your phone, it shows up on your computer automatically. But all of its, the actual local data storage is all SQLite database files. Apple are really big into SQLite. So yeah, there are just these files littering your computer with your address book in there and all of your iMessages and all of your photo metadata. It's just sat there waiting for you to, to dig in and, and play with it. Nice. <laughs> with nice. data set, probably. Right. Yep. I am. Um, I've, yeah. I've. 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 I've got a script called. Um, I'll add it to the show notes. I've got a script called Dog Sheep um, Photos, which uploads your photos to your own S3 bucket, so that you can actually link to them, embed them on web pages, and it extracts all of that SQLite data into a, into a more usable format. So yeah, I've got a online database of all of my photographs that I update every now and then with the script, and it, it works. It's phenomenal what you can do with it. Cool. Out in the live scene, um, Brandon. Hey, Brandon. Says this is fantastic. Definitely excited. And also taking a, a step back to yours, Brian. David Colton. Hey, David. Says I'm using double quotes now in Black, but my typing has not evolved yet to double quotes. So you just pass it through the single quote to double quote compiler process called Black, and then you got it all, all adapted. That's nice. Yeah. <laughs> I've saved so, like Black has given me back. I estimate 5% of my program typing time used to be worrying about indentation and such like, and I got all of that back. Like, thanks to Black, I never even think about how I indent or style my code at all. I just say, I, I, I'll, I'll literally write horrible run-on lines that, that, that go on for ages and then run Black and it formats it nicely and I forget about it. It's, it's wonderful. It's fantastic. That's cool. Yeah, yeah great. Um, got any extras for us, Michael? Uh, you know I do. I always do. <laughs> Unless I have an extra, 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 hear all about it, then I guess I still do. So uh, we talked about strong typing last time, which lets you do cool stuff like go and put a decorator onto a function and say, well, this one, you know, if it has type annotations or type information, like Python itself just does, if you put at match typing the decorator on there, it'll verify at runtime that 
you said it took an integer and you actually pass an integer, not a list or whatever to that parameter, right? Yeah. Well, Felix, who maintains this project, reached out and said, hey, that actually does a whole lot more. You should check some other things out. I just wanted to highlight a couple of things that he pointed out. One, if we, uh, you know, we're all familiar with the named tuple and you, you say the type name in a quote and then you say the fields or the elements attributes in a, a list, either space or comma separated like spell, mana, fact, and so on. So this one has a typed name tuple where you can put the type information in very similar ways to what Python would have, like colon, stir, colon, list, and so on. And then you get actual type runtime validation that your data going into your named tuple is actually the type of data you expect in your name tuple. Oh, nice. That's Isn't cool. that neat? Yeah. 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 So there's that. And then also, I love this about our show. It, it kind of blows my mind that this this is how the world works. And I really appreciate this. Everyone who... who plays along, we'll say things like, oh, I wish we could specify indexes in Beanie. And then like the next episode, we're like, hey, look, Roman added a way to do indexes in Beanie. And I said, this is awesome that it applies to functions, but why couldn't it apply to classes? It's basically the same thing. And so now, six days ago, we have a new feature. <laughs> <laughs> you can also apply strong typing to classes uh, as well, or something like that. So well done, well done. Uh, Is it that. because you asked for it? Because, I mean, I, I asked for single quotes in black, and I didn't get that. But Well, I mean, it also may depend on the size of the project. <laughs> <laughs> the more input they get, the, the less influence any individual uh, yeah, statement they uh, have on it, right? <laughs> yeah, anyway, Felix, thanks for working on that and the extra information there. Yeah, anything oh, else? I, I actually, one other thing, yes, I... I have finally, I've been working to make sure that we don't have to have one of these completely useless, dreadful talks on technology. Our site uses cookies. Here's our cookie policy. Do you accept our cookie policy or do you not accept our cookie policy? AKA, would you like our website to work or would you like to go away? Like that's kind of what the button so often means, right? Um, And so I thought I removed all the analytics. I removed anything else that we might be doing third party. We're good. And I went to Python Bytes and I'm like, wait, there's, there's double click, there's Facebook, there's Google. There's like, what is all this stuff? And we started including the live stream YouTube embed and it started bringing back. And I'm like, why would Google be putting in Facebook? That sucks. And there was also the discus conversation stuff that people haven't really stopped using. They all just go and chat on the YouTube streams now. They want to have a live comment type of thing. So I'm like, well, I'll just take that out. That got rid of the Facebook one. Um, and then, but what do you do about, about that? So I, instead of embedding the YouTube player, I said, I'm going to figure out a way to get the picture automatically from YouTube, the poster. And then when you hover over it, it just has a play icon and says play on YouTube and it opens up a new window. And I thought I was all clever yeah. by just putting the image there, but serving it from Google. No, there's now like the YouTube image server is putting tracking cookies on our site. I'm like, well, come on. Why is this so hard? So now on the server, we use requests, we download the image anytime it has to be shown on a page, put it in MongoDB, and then if you pull it, we serve it back out so we can like strip the cookies, the tracking cookies out. Nice. And now, now when you look at the tracking content, none detected on the site. But nice. why, why world does it have to be so hard? I just want to- Isn't it amazing this. how yeah. it used to be YouTube embeds were the absolute gold standard for embedding video on a web page. Like the, why yes. would you do anything else? And now actually I'm beginning to think, you know what, post the video, the .mp .mov file or whatever yourself yeah, yeah. and stick on an HTML5 video embed. And that's probably a better experience 
for your users as well, because, you know, when they click the video on their mobile phone, it'll play full screen and they won't have to hop through to the YouTube app and all of that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, just quick shout out, like this is taking several passes, but I <laughs> think it's finally 100% no tracking. Uh, I mean, we weren't putting it there before, but like it was seeping in from just like what we might yeah. include on the page as content. Right. So anyway, yeah. there you have it, Brian. That was my weekend. How was nice. Yours? Well, thanks. <laughs> I appreciate yeah. you doing all that work for us. Yeah. <laughs> David Cole has the wash hands emoji. There we go. We're all better. Yeah. Um, well, I've got no extras. Um, Simon, do you have anything extra you want to share? I've got one. Um, so textual is the, you know, and Will McGugan, who's working on Rich, has been building textual, which I know you've talked about on the podcast before. Yeah. What I would encourage people to do is pay close attention because I've never seen a piece of open source software developed this quickly. Like <laughs> every day he's posting this video where he's like, oh, and here's the new feature where today he posted a video of it doing full like tree view on a file system, which you could interact with with your mouse in the terminal. And when you clicked on a file, it would open it in a separate panel with um, like with uh, with syntax highlighting. It's It's absolutely astonishing. It's yeah, like turning we- into one of the better ways of building a GUI application is running in, in text in the terminal. We, we could almost have just a section of the show called what's, what's Will up to? You really uh, could. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's re-implemented CSS Grid, the CSS Grid mechanism for terminal applications. It's brilliant. And yeah, I'm just having such a great time watching him do all of this stuff. Well, he seems to be live streaming it. No, I uh, don't think... I don't think so, but he posts like little five minute videos on Twitter every day of the stuff that he's doing. But I I feel inadequate watching him work this fast, but just saying. It's such Uh, a delight though. It's (laughs) like he was, he was born to build this piece of software and now he's building it and we all get to watch him do it. Yeah. It's great. That's cool. Yeah. Henry Schreiner, hey, out in the live stream says textual is amazing. Indeed. It's, it's quite, uh, quite something. Yeah. And I know, I, I remember when he was trying to name it. And textual didn't even come up on my radar as something that might be possible, but it's it's so obvious now, like graphical and textual. Yeah, makes sense. It's cool. So, hey, how about a joke, maybe? Oh, man, I got some jokes for us. Uh, two jokes. The one, I'm not really sure how to convey it, but I guess I'll do oh. my best. I want you I, to I, sing. I, no, man, us. this is you. This is you, brother. <laughs> All right. So first one here is uh i could definitely do this one this one is uh from john on twitter but pointed out to us by nick moore who was previously on the show not too long ago thanks nick and this one poses i think also this is perfect for when simon is on the show it says what do you get when you select star from goblins dragons elves and comma unicorns a query tale as a, oh as my goodness to a fairy tale a query tale it's bad terrible it's bad oh wow um well i wanted to share one that people could actually share with their uh this isn't in the list but one that people i just read recently um people might be able to share with their kids um uh in the northwest we've got uh sasquatch right so you know what they yeah what do they call bigfoot in europe big meter (laughs) oh it's pretty bad (laughs) um quick tip if you're ever near santa cruz in california there is a Bigfoot museum in a log cabin in the woods outside of Santa Cruz called the Bigfoot Discovery Experience. And it is not a joke. It is very serious. And there is a man there who will take you through all of his evidence for Big- Bigfoot. And it takes about an hour. He's got maps and plaster casts of feet footprints and a map oh with goodness. pins on it. And vid- it's fascinating. I could not That's recommend amazing. it more. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if the COVID 
pandemic has affected the Bigfoot population. Oh, you you should well go 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 go. You can call him up and ask him. While I was talking to him, he got a phone call to answer questions about Bigfoot. So he oh, will yeah, he will answer your yeah. calls. Yeah. yeah. All right. Hey Brian, your joke got a groan all the way from Australia. <laughs> nice. Uh, or was it mine? I'm not sure. It could have been either. Honestly. Yeah. I think I'm going to go with the meter one. <laughs> they were both all pretty right. bad. All right. Okay. I'll, I'll I'll see what I can do this with this next one here. So. If if you're a um, kid of the 90s, I guess is probably the time. Mm-hmm. There's a uh, pinky in the brain. Yeah. And apparently on one of the 10 places I have to write your name, I typed it too quickly and wrote brain. <laughs> yeah, and Brett Cannon caught it. <laughs> and so uh, so he he did a, a take on pinky in the brain and it starts out, what do you want to do today, Brian? Same, Same thing, thing we, we do everything with every Wednesday, Michael. Help Python take over the world. Yeah, it's <laughs> nice. Michael and the brain. Yes, Michael and the brain. One's into testing, others into GUIs. <laughs> They're both into making Python seem sane. They're Michael. They're Michael and the brain, brain, brain. brain, yeah. brain, brain. yeah, fantastic. I love so, it. Phenomenal. Thank you. <laughs> we need to have somebody that's got like musical talent to actually put this together as something. So anyway. Yes, someone who is not me because it won't come out well. <laughs> So we'll put in this with the lyrics in the show notes. Um, I think we should leave them there so that we are somebody... accepting submissions. Yes. And yeah. if they are, if they pass, we may actually play them on one of the next episodes. Oh, I would love it. Yeah. Could be the new theme song, Brian. It yeah. Could be the, big, the dawning of an era. I'm getting tired of the old theme song. Yeah, exactly. Which is no theme song. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks a lot for uh, showing up, Michael. And thanks, Simon. Um, this was yeah, fun. Th- thanks for having me. Yep, you bet. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to Python Bytes. Follow the show on Twitter via at Python Bytes. That's Python Bytes as in B-Y-T-E-S. Get the full show notes over at pythonbytes.fm. If you have a news item we should cover, just visit pythonbytes.fm and click submit in the nav bar. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. If you want to join us for the live recording, just visit the website and click live stream to get notified of when our next episode goes live. That's usually happening at noon Pacific on Wednesdays over at YouTube. On behalf of myself and Brian Aachen, this is Michael Kennedy. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.